grab your Bible. We are in James chapter four. We're going to finish up the chapter today and be ready to move into chapter five in the coming weeks. Uh, as you're grabbing your Bible, I remembered that one thing that I uh, was thinking was on my calendar for this week. It actually has nothing to do with you unless you just desire to pray for your pastor. My in-laws will be here on Wednesday for good, for good. Yay. Yay. Is this being recorded? Yay. <laughs> now it is good news. We have not had a permanent grandparent fixture for our whole marriage. And uh, I told my mother-in-law, uh, she asked the other day on the phone, she said, are you going to get tired of me? Cause they're moving in to our house, at least temporarily until they find a place. She said, are you going to get tired of me after a few weeks? And uh, I thought for just a second, I said, at least take me a couple years to get tired of you. It's been so many without you that it'll take me a few to get to get ready to get rid of you. But uh, that's that's what's coming. I knew there was something on Wednesday or Thursday, and that's that's what's it. You can pray for for us. Uh, We're excited. That's going to be good. And the grand boys are very excited. Well, the book of James, you have come to realize already is a test, right? It is in some ways, it's a self-test. It's for us to look at and hold uh, as a mirror to our faith and see, is our faith legit or is it fraudulent? Uh, It's not really a written test that you could just uh, get you a scantron and do multiple choice and and come up with the correct theology, right? And it's not even a a verbal test to where somebody, if they asked you the correct theology, you can just say, yeah, I know that. It's not something you could just profess with your lips, so to speak, it's one of those tests that uh, they're kind of like lab tests. You know the difference? You know, there's the test you take on paper. There's a test you take verbally. But there's some tests that you got to get in there and you got to cut the frog open. Right. And you got to pin him back and you got to see, do I actually know where the parts are? OK. And the reason they make doctors do that sort of thing early on. Right. Is because the responsibility down the road is so big that we got to start you out pretty small. But we got to get you off of the paper and out of what just comes out of your mind and what comes across your lips. You can tell me the right answer, but can you actually do it? And that's what James is looking for. He's looking for the lab of our life. Does it does the rubber meet the road when it comes to Monday through Saturday? Because we can say a whole lot of stuff here. We can check off all the boxes. We can get the multiple choice right. Theologically speaking, but does it actually play out in our life? James would say if it's real. Then, number one, I'll just give you a little review here. We will deal rightly. We will deal rightly with the bad days. Remember those various trials that we will encounter? We'll be able to handle those. We have a correct perspective on those. We will also deal rightly in what he called the word of truth. And we'll be doers of the word and not just hearers only. Right. We'll also deal rightly with. You remember the lowly he talked about? They will be an indicator of our faith, the way we respond, the way we handle them. He said that it's actually a fulfillment of what he called the royal law. You remember that? Then he went into uh, that dreaded little member that we will deal rightly with our tongue. That relentless evil, he called it, full of deadly. Remember what he said? Poison. Then he moved into the area of our heart, not just from our tongue, but into our heart. We will deal rightly if our faith is legitimate. We will deal rightly with our own heart. Carefully examining ourselves, not to uh, not being arrogant, he said, and so lying against what the truth is. We will be honest. We will be forthright with what is going on in our heart. And we will deal as a result of that rightly with our own personal sin, knowing that God is opposed to the proud, yet gives grace to the who to the humble. 
And because of all those, if we deal rightly with all those, then we will be in turn dealing rightly and professing correctly the gospel message itself. And remember that transition, sort of that sort of that turning point in chapter two, where he dealt with the the theology of the thing, giving evidence with our life that the true seed of faith has been properly planted in us with. With the evidence, just like there was evidence, remember of who Abraham, the father of many nations and on the other extreme, who Rahab, a Gentile woman. So from the father of all Israel to a, a Gentile harlot. This path that God chooses to evidence the gospel, to evidence the the legitimacy of the seed that he has planted in us, it flowers out in life. And it's how it works from beginning to end, from top to bottom. That's how God proves us, proving our faith in everyday life. And James said in uh, one of the commanding verses of the text, if not, what use is your faith really? What use is it? And the inference there is it's a very little use at all, if any. If it's not being evidenced in these different situations. I told you at the beginning that uh, my mentor said that uh, the book of James is like a punch in the throat. He just goes right at you. I called it in chapter two, a punch in the gut. Uh, Somebody walked away the other day from one of the messages and say, well, I'm just all cut up now. He's just wearing me out. And that's sometimes how we feel in the book of James. I kind of feel right here. As I think about it in chapter four, that that James has got us pinned. He's he's knocked us flat to the ground. Right, Brett. And now he's on top of us, if you can picture this. And he's got us by the, the front of the shirt and he's lifted us now off the ground as we're all beat up and bloody here because he's just hammered us with truth after truth after truth. And he kind of lifts us up off the ground. And remember, the heart of James is to cry out to the brethren. And he's he's going to pull us up by our collar in chapter four. And he's just, just going to beg us. In a soft, pleading, passionate voice. This is what our faith should look like. This is what our faith should look like. By this point, by this point, if we're not listening, then we're not we're not going to hear a thing. I would suppose James has presented so many evidences that by this point, most likely, and this is the unfortunate part, the only people who are listening are those whose faith is actually legitimate. Uh, For those whose faith is fraudulent, James has probably lost you by now. And after that first blow, you scattered. But for those of you who remain this morning and you feel like he's got you on your back, don't worry. He's going to he's going to pick you up and he's going to speak words of truth and life and and not easy words once again. But the truth always sets free, right? The truth always brings freedom. And so that's what we're looking for. James chapter four. Last week, we looked at the first 10 verses. I showed you how a man. From uh, not the book of James, but from the Old Testament, I showed you how a man was who was said to be after God's own heart. Who was who? David. I showed you how David dealt with sin that was revealed in his life. We read through his encounter with Nathan after his uh, his faults with Bathsheba. We read you through that uh, that passage. And it said that David, like chapter four indicates, a godly man should. David realized a split in his heart that he had been serving himself and trying to serve God. But he had been about his own business in this whole deal with Bathsheba and Uriah. He had been he had been seeking to fulfill his own desires, James would say. But he sensed and realized that the words of Nathan and the revelation of God, he realized that split in his heart. And then what did he do? He submitted to God. He humbled himself. 
All this you'll find as part of the process that James would say a faithful guy in chapter 4 would undergo. So he, he realizes the error, submits himself to God, he humbles himself, he was miserable, he mourned, he wept, and he let his laughter be turned to tears, right? That's exactly what David did, the man after God's own heart, and that's exactly what James chapter 4 says ought to happen in the man who is of the faith that is confronted with sin in his life. That's that's the process we should go through. And then as David drew near to God, what happened? What happened? God, as James 4 says, will happen. God drew near to him. And instead of God issuing this death penalty on David and the whole nation and his whole heritage, which Nathan warned of, he said, God will be gracious to you and he will not have your life. And now the consequences of his sin were still there. The baby died. There were ramifications there that were unreversible. And the penalty had to be paid for those. But just like James 4 said, he drew near to God and God drew near to him. He humbled himself and God did what? Verse 10, chapter 4, God exalted him. God exalted him. And so that was the process. And we looked at David so that we could understand the first 10 verses of chapter 4. Let's move on from there. Do you remember what the source of conflict was in those first 10 verses? He said, from big to small, from war to the little spat in your house, the source of those conflicts, the source of this outside war is really to be connected, to be found at the root of the inner war going on inside of us. It is what he called the inner desire which wages war in us. Chapter 4, verse 1. He called it our what was the word? Our pleasures. It's, uh, it's the idea that we do what pleases us. It's the idea that we decide that we are most important and we elevate ourselves over what is right. And so I get what I want. And is it easy for us, even as believers, even in the faith, to slip back into that mentality that we're, we're Lord of the ring, so to speak, and that I'm in charge and that I'm directing the course of my life? It's very easy for us to slip back and forth into that and out of that, even as we're temp- attempting to walk with Christ. I mean, Satan helps us to be swayed in that direction. Our flesh is what we're at war with because it's not dead yet. We still drag along this old carcass of our own body. All the old habits that we had, we still have to deal with them. And so it's this inner war with us. And it's going to be God in control or me in control and what I want, my pleasures. And there is that inner battle that is to blame for all the battles that we see on the outside. We decide that we are most important. We take first place. But James would say in the heart of the faithful, God cannot accept second place, can he? I mean, this is part of the evidence that you know that you're in the faith. That in in, in the faithful man or woman, when we start to lean towards the old nature, the spirit of God won't allow us to be satisfied there. He won't allow us to rest there. How do you know that you're in the faith? Because you're uncomfortable in the presence of sin. Why? Because you're in Christ And in Christ, there can be no sin, right? In the presence of God, sin cannot dwell. And so when we drag it in or we attempt to drag him towards sin, there's this friction. There's this tension in our heart, and it it can't be. God will not accept second place, and he will not allow us to place him in second place and be comfortable. It is, verse 4, paramount. You remember chapter 4, verse 4? It is paramount to what he calls adultery. And our God is, verse 5, he said, what? Jealous for the hearts of his children. That's our God. 
He would not have us be split in our affections. He would have us be fully devoted to him. Now, why is that, incidentally? It is because in him we will find complete and ultimate satisfaction for all of our desires. We seem to think in our humanity that we can fulfill our own needs and our own desires. But the truth is, let me just put it in plain English. The truth is you will never be happier than when you're in the will of God and when you're, you are at rest in his presence, basking in his glory and grace. That is, in fact, the best day of your life. Mark it down. I don't care what pleasure you have uh, experienced. I don't care how that pleasure has come. I don't care what riches, what material things you have gained. Let me just let me just assure you, the heart of the believer knows this. At the depths, at the depths of his soul, he understands that the most satisfying place for man, woman, and child, it is in the presence of God. It is in no thing that this world can offer. And so God won't let us rest there. He won't let the truly faithful rest in sin because it's not where it's not even to our benefit. It's not even to our benefit. It's interesting how James set up chapter four by chapter three. You remember what he said? He challenged the heart of the religious person who thinks they've got it all figured out. Remember the question? Who among you is wise? All right. Anyone want to step forward and be wise? He says, let's let's see who really can measure up. He challenged their heart. What we found was not wisdom from above, but what he called earthly, natural and demonic wisdom. That's the wisdom we come up with. A wisdom that shows itself. Remember what he said in jealousy and selfish ambition. Again, elevating us. Jealousy is concerned about who me, what I want. Selfish ambition is about what my desires, my pleasing myself. And the result of that, remember what he said, selfish Ambition results in disorder in every sort of evil thing you can think of. It doesn't work out the way we ever want it to, does it? And we just continue at war and at war and lacking peace. Instead of being pure and peaceable, we are filled with, give me another P word right here, pride. It's about us. And we have elevated ourselves, And that's exactly where we left off last week. God's saying we don't need to be. What did he say? Verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you to be humble is literally to be low minded, not to be high minded, not to think too lofty of yourself, but to have a correct, a correct view of self in light of God. That's humility. We put ourselves on the throne, however. And we uh, we say that it's God's throne, our hearts, that is. But we we swap day to day. We swap our affections. And it is so very easy for even even those who are in the faith to usurp. To usurp the king and attempt to move him off the throne of our heart and put our own pleasures, our own desires, the own pleasing of ourself, our own pride in that place, instead of humbling ourselves in the presence of the rightful king, we put ourselves back on the throne. And that's what we must war against. Now, James commanded in chapter four that we are to humble ourselves in the presence of God. And the bonus is that he will exalt us. See, God, God's not going to leave us in the lurch. We actually get more than we ever could dream of 
We actually get the satisfaction that can only be found in him. And instead of searching in all the different places, he says, here's where it really is. You you see the heart of James as he grabs us by the collar. He's pleading with us to say, listen, guys, it makes no sense for you to be in the faith following Jesus, the sacrifice for you. When you had rebelled against him, he he did this for you so so that that relationship could be repaired. It makes no sense for you to... To put your foot back in the old world. It makes no sense for you to fall back into satisfying your own desires. You are completely fulfilled in the presence of God. If only that's where you would dwell. If only that is where you would live your life out of. Well, James, uh, you know this. He's not going to leave us in the theoretical. So in the rest of chapter 4, after having said that, after having given us the rationale... He's going to give us the test case. We're going to go back to the lab. And in two examples, he's going to test life. And he's going to say, let me, let, me test, let me test the humility in you personally. And he's going to, he's going to hit, I, I think, two of the big ones. It's, it's interesting, you know, why when, you, when you're just going to deal with a couple examples, why would you pick those? I always wonder, why did they pick that one? And why did they pick that one first? And then why did they, why did they lead with that and leave us with this one. It's amazing to think about the divinity that goes into the inspiration of Scripture, that, that these are the two examples that not only James chose, but through divine inspiration, God chose to be the lab for this chapter. Watch this. Starting in verse 11, do not speak against one another, brethren. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? How do we usurp God on the throne? How do we take back that right from him on a daily basis? Well, one of the ways we do it. And James chooses to once again bring up our tongue. Have you noticed that? In four chapters, we get it at least four times. There's not a chapter in his letter that misses the tongue. And he's going back to it once again, and he's going to tell us, here's a prime example of how we put ourselves back on the throne, how we elevate self. We don't humble ourselves in the presence of God. We take back over our lives. And he said one of the most deadly ways we do it is... To speak against one another, against the brethren. It means that we are harsh against one another. We are judgmental against one another. And as soon as I say it, right, we understand this, this ought not be. It shouldn't be. But James knows something, and I think we know something. It very often is. How easy is it, church, for us... When we are hurt, when we are offended, or when we are upset, or when we see error to lash out against another, even believer. And that's the amazing part here. He's not even talking about unbelievers in error. He's talking about believers. How easy is it for us to just run our mouth and like a sword stab at another brother or sister in Christ? And what he says here is, That not only elevates us above that other person, because it does, right? 
And that's very often the motive for us speaking against a brother, isn't it? Is that in our speaking against them to someone else, we somehow look better. Isn't that how it works? (laughs) Isn't that really the motive of our heart very often? That when we lash out against someone else or when we're judgmental of someone else in the body of Christ or when we have something to say, uh, we very often think it's justified and we very often think we're just in spewing it out of our mouth. But it all too often seems to make us appear in better light, doesn't it? <laughs> we very, very rarely it would attack someone else if it weren't going to make us look even better. And somehow in bringing them down, we end up we end up elevating ourselves. We end up putting ourselves back as the Lord of the ring, don't we? Instead of being humble, very often we speak against one another. Some of your, some of your Bibles say that we slander. You know what that word slander comes from? Uh, many scholars believe this verse is connected uh, back to an earlier verse that talks, about, uh, that talks about the devil. The word slander is the word diabolo in the Greek. It's the word that we also translate the devil. It literally means dia means through, balo means to throw, to throw through, okay? And it's this picture of you stabbing with a spear through the heart of man. That's what, that's what we call diabolical. That our attitude of slander, slander, diabolo, the same word that's often translated devil, it is an evil thing to do. And it stabs through. Scripture would uh, equate it very often to uh, murder, in fact. This idea of slander is, is a serious matter. But it goes on. And we all very often think it's justified. We all very often have our own excuse for it. I very often uh, fall prey to this and find myself talking about other men who stand in uh, pulpits much like this one in other places, and I, I run them straight through with the spear that is my tongue by my very words. All the while justifying to myself, probably with Satan's help, uh, they deserve it. Uh, they do things this way, and it's not, it's not quite right. And so maybe, selfishly, by me indicting them, I'm somehow elevating myself. I'm somehow uh, bolstering my own self-esteem. I'm somehow bolstering my own faith. And James would say that, my friend, is wrong because it not only elevates us over that person. You know what he says here in this verse? He says it elevates us over the very law of God that speaks out against it. The Old Testament was replete with warnings against not doing this very thing, against speaking Evil, giving false testimony against a brother over and over in the Old Testament. And the, the, the listeners of James's letter, the readers of James's letter, you better believe, knew their Old Testament and knew that the Old Testament had something to say about this very thing. That is why when you come down to verse 17, skip down there. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing, that is the reader, that is the listener. And unfortunately, it is all too often true that is us. We know the right thing, but we do not do it. And to him, it is sin. And for one reason or another, we find grounds to justify lashing out 
in condemning another brother or sister in Christ. And not only do we elevate ourselves, we're not humbling ourselves, we elevate ourselves over that person. And in a sense, we elevate ourselves over the law that we are somehow now above above the scriptures. We're above what God commands us not to do. And more than that, look at what it said in verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge. All in caps, right? Who is it? It is the one in caps who is able to save and to destroy. Who is that? It's God himself. He's the one who who made the law. He's the one who can enforce the law. He's the only one who can judge by the law. And you get that right because you're not only able to destroy, but you're able to save. And so as we elevate ourselves in this way, we not only usurp the other person that we speak evil against, we usurp the law. And we, we in a sense, in our audacity, in our pretentiousness, we take the place of God himself. It's a mark not of humility. It's a mark of us putting ourselves back on the throne. Look at the next example, verse 13. Come now. He's going to indict the next guy. Here's our next example. You who say, quote, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city. It doesn't really matter. The point is just that this happens very often. Watch. We'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Now, let me just say this. It's not wrong to plan and it's not wrong to plan to make a profit. The inference here, however, is that it's a plan without God and it's a plan without God's approval. Keep going. Yes. Do you not know what your life will be like tomorrow? You are just a what is it? A vapor. It's less than a breath. That's all that we are. If you want to uh, connect that back to an earlier phrase, you can go back to verse 12. But who are you to judge? Who are you? You've elevated yourself in this way. Now the next guy, you're going to elevate yourself in this way. Come now, you who say you're going to do this or that tomorrow and you're going to plan to do this or that. Do you not realize that today could be the last You don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor. The Old Testament says that the life of a man, it's interesting, this word picture, the life of a man is in his nostrils. That's it. God gave us life by breathing into Adam. That's it. And here James says, you're, you're, not as, you're not as in control of this thing as you think you are. You're not as elevated as you think you are. You're not, as, you're not as powerful as you think you are. In fact, your words sometimes, uh, well, my dad used to put it this way. Um, sometimes you let, your, you let your mouth overload your buttocks. He would use another word in there. Uh, and the meaning of that is that the things that come out of our mouth, we can't really back up with our body. And very often what comes out of our mouth will get us in trouble and we can't actually back it up. We don't have the, we don't have the power or the wherewithal to actually defend what we've said. And James says, listen, uh, you may make all these plans. You may have all these dreams, et cetera, et cetera. And in and of itself, that would be fine. But you have to have the attitude, the attitude that you know that it's not up to you. What is the attitude you should have? Look at the next verse. Instead, you ought to say what? If the Lord wills, we will live and also to do this or that. If the Lord wills. 
in old Victorian writings, you would find at the bottom of a letter. You'd sign your name and you'd write sincerely or whatever, uh, whatever you want to end your letter with. But at the end, you would uh, leave the letters DV. It's the Latin words Deo Valente. It meant God willing. And so whatever they put in that letter, they would sign their name. And then down at the bottom, it was etiquette to put DV. It was it was understood as audacious and pretentious not to put that because you were going off of your own plans and not considering the fact that God may end this whole thing right now because we are merely a breath away. The breath that God gave, he can in a moment take back. And if you've been in a deathbed situation and you've watched a man or a woman come to their last breath, they lose all facilities and the last thing to go is that their breath gets shallower and shallower until at last they take that last and that's it and in that moment isn't it so clear isn't it so clear that in that moment we are extremely fragile in other words we are we are at the very whim of that very breath that is in us And you go make all the plans you want to make and you have all the dreams and aspirations and and you do all that stuff. That's fine. But there ought to be in us. And all too often, James would say there is not. That's the indictment of example number two. There is not the attitude in us that God be willing. I'll do this or I'll do that. And so what do we do? We often in our in our gains, in our planning and by the illusion of finances, We fall into the trap of thinking that we actually have some sort of control over this thing called life. Is that right? That by what we've gained in the past or what we have secured for our future, we somehow now come to this illusion of rest that it's all going to be okay. And there will actually be a tomorrow and we are prepared for it. And now we have not humbled ourselves in the presence of God. We have we have set ourselves up. As captain of the ship. And James says, we're like a vapor, man. And God could just as easily take it away. You have no idea. Plan away. Plan away, oh Christian. You have no idea if that breath will be left in you tomorrow. And In those moments of understanding, what happens in the heart of the faithful man? What happens in the heart of the truly faithful Perspective is clarified, isn't it? Perspective is clarified. When there might not be a tomorrow, everything looks different today, doesn't it? Yeah. Just ask someone who has been recently in one of those deathbed moments. Or just ask someone who has had a severely ill child. I was at one of my neighbor's house just this week uh, having dinner. And one of my other neighbors, I don't even know why this came up, but he just asked... Uh, have you ever really been in a <clears throat> in a real fearful moment? Like what was what was the most uh, scary moment you had ever been in? And, and I remember now we were talking about like hiking and and one of the guys is a, is a runner. And, and, and he was talking about uh, being on a run and just, you know, uh, being worried about in one place where he was being worried about bears and wild animals and things. And so we got to talking about about that sort of fear. And he put that question out there. And so I'm thinking that somebody's going to respond. Yeah, you know, there was one time I was water skiing and, you know, I went right over an alligator or something. It freaked me out really bad. Um, that's what I was thinking because I've been near to that. And, and the other couple at the table, they both in, in 
in unison didn't say anything like that, but they said uh, when our when our son was in the hospital, they had a son prematurely and he, he about didn't make it. And. And it hit me right there. <laughs> yeah, they know what it means. That our life is a vapor. Because nothing, I I can guarantee you, nothing else mattered in those moments where their son was clinging for his life. Amen? (laughs) Not a thing. Ask the mom who's got a son in Afghanistan right now. If any of this other stuff going around, going on in our world, college football, pro football, whatever else is going on in our little life here, ask them how much that matters. It matters very little. Their heart and their mind is with their son who may be in harm's way right now and may not be back. It's very easy when we, when we have those moments, isn't it? To understand that our life is like a vapor. Unfortunately, and fortunately, we, we don't all too often have those moments. We live in prosperity. We live in health. We live in grace to the point where we very often, as the psalmist would say, we forget our God. We forget our God. And James would say, listen, We cannot elevate ourselves. We cannot put ourselves above other men. We cannot put ourselves above the law. We cannot put ourselves above God. In fact, we need to understand that we are just a vapor. Instead, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast. Look at what we do. We boast in our arrogance, or it could be translated our pretensions. And all such boasting is evil it ought not be therefore to the one who knows the right thing to do and the inference here is as i indicated earlier that in both examples the church knows neither one should be true the church knows that it's not right with our tongues to jab at another in order to elevate ourselves it is not of god it is of god to be humble to be of low mindedness And not to set ourselves above other men, especially other men who are in Christ. It's not right to set ourselves above his law. And it's not right in turn, therefore, to set ourselves above the one lawgiver and the one judge who is able to not only save but to destroy one and the other from top to bottom. It's not our job. Well, can I show you uh, one example that I think will sum this up pretty well, and I'll be done. Turn real quick to 2 Samuel chapter 6. I picked on David last week. I'm going to pick on him again. He gave us an example of being after a man, being a man after God's own heart. He helped us to understand the first half of chapter 4. I think, I think the heart that James is after in the believer in chapter 4, I think David will show us what it is here in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And I'll be done with this. The Ark of the Covenant which you know was the centerpiece for the temple and the tabernacle. It was the box that held two rocks, right? And those two rocks, not cut by man, but cut by the finger of God, held what? The commandments of God, the very law of God. And they put it in a box, the Ark of the Covenant, and it was it was decked out and they put that box in a room that was decked out and they put that room in a in a tabernacle and in a temple that was decked out with every sort of lavish accoutrement you could give to it but it was all centered around two rocks carved by the finger of god 
And it is where the presence of God himself would dwell. Israel lost the box and they lost, therefore, the law and they lost, therefore, the presence. And what came with that, the blessing of God, it was gone. They lost it to the Philistines. Uh, Saul made some mistakes. A guy named Eli made some mistakes. They had lost it before. It ends up being in just this guy's house. And David hears that this guy is being blessed because the, the ark is just in his house. And he says, it's time to go get it. When David became king, one of the very first things he does is he goes and gets the box. He gets the presence of God and he brings it back to the rightful place. And when he brings it back, he does something completely unlike a king. Watch what he does. Second Samuel six. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David, watch this, he was dancing before the Lord with all his might. Now, here's the picture. David is breaking it down, man. He's not just doing a little jig. He's dancing like a crazy fool in front of the ark. And he sent this whole processional, probably probably a million people to go get this ark from this guy's house where it should have never been. And they're bringing it back to its correct place. For the nation of Israel so that they could once again be blessed by God. And in this and in this parade, okay, in this parade with priests now carrying the ark because some other guys tried to carry it and it almost fell off the cart. And one guy put his hand up and remember he got killed because that wasn't allowed in all this seriousness. But in bringing it back, David gets out in front of this thing and he starts dancing like a wild man. Look what else he does. And David was wearing a linen ephod. That is not the common dress of a dignified king. It is the common dress of a serving priest in the temple or in the tabernacle. He's dressed in essentially an apron, a linen apron. Here's what has happened. David has tossed his dignified kingly garments. He's thrown them to the side. He's put on essentially this apron. It's like a, it's like a nightshirt. It indicates nothing special about him being king. He has disregarded anything that would be uh, an external indication that this guy is to be revered as king of the nation. He's gotten rid of it. And it says he's dancing like a crazy man, wearing this priestly servant's garment. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. You would blow trumpets as part of uh, as part of the symbol, symbolism of freedom uh, and grace. Verse 16. Then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. Uh, you will notice here in just this passage how many times. The phrase before the Lord is used here. And she despised him in her heart. Number one, what is she doing at home? Why isn't she with the rest of the nation of Israel? Why is she just sitting around waiting on the ark to get back, looking out of her window, painting her toenails? She should be with the nation. The inference is that she said, you guys go and do it. I'll see you when you get back. And so here she is with her with her husband and king dancing like a fool before the Lord in front of the ark as it's coming back to its rightful place, not even wearing his kingly garments. And she looks out the window and she's disgusted. What kind of king is this? Look at what it says. So they brought the ark 
of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Further, he distributed, he does something out here, he distributed to all the people and to all the multitude of Israel, both to men and to women, a cake of bread and one of dates and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed. Each to his house is interesting here. If you go to Song of Solomon, you'll find raisin cakes and date cakes there. You know what it's for? It's to boost uh, your libido. It's essentially a symbol of saying, go home, uh, make merry, and uh, let's have some babies. That's what he's saying. Uh, it, was, it was a symbolic way of saying, uh, be blessed and multiply. Okay. And what David knows here is that now that God is back in his rightful place in the in the tabernacle, in the presence of all Israel, now God can bless the nation. And he says, go home and be be blessed, because God now might send who through the seed of David, who's coming, the Messiah. Go home. Be fruitful and multiply. Here's your raisin cake. Look at this. But when David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. It doesn't mean that he was without clothes. It just means that he took off his kingly garments and he was just like a common man. Something she was unwilling to do going with the nation to get the ark. She chastises him for doing what kind of king would do something like that? You're no better than any of those because you, you didn't look any better than any of the others. Shameful. Look at the response. So David said to Michael, it was where? Before the Lord. Who, by the way, chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate where? Before the Lord. What was David's primary concern? It was the Lord. Was it his dignity? No. Was it the shame of the thing? No. Was it how he looked dancing like a fool? No. Was it his place among common people? No. What was his, what was his desire? What was his heart? It was God and God alone. David says, my kingship matters not here. And he was of low mindedness. He humbled himself he put himself in the place that James says we ought to be in perspective to a holy God. We are a, we're a vapor. And David said, I'll throw all that off joyfully because I'm before the Lord. It's it's in fact this very God that I'm dancing before that made me king. This shepherd boy, he anointed me king out of the out of the out of the field. He put me here. He gave me all this. And so you better believe I'm going to I'm going to dance before him. Keep going. I will be even more lightly esteemed than this. And I will be humble in where? Look at this. Great verse. I will be humble in my own eyes. That's where we have to start, church. Humility for the world to see has to start in our own self. I'll be humble in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken, I'm not worried. With them I will be distinguished. David knew that being humbled in the presence of God means that in due time he will be exalted. James 4 verse 10. What about Michael? What did she get? 
for her distinguishment, for her high-mindedness, what did she receive? 23, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. What could have been of Michael? Think about it. What could have been of Michael? This is pre-David and Bathsheba. You know what could have been? It could have been that when you got to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you get to the genealogies of Jesus, it could have been that David had a son. Via who? Not Bathsheba, but David had a son, Solomon, by Michael. But it was not. He came home with his raisin cakes, and she was having none of it. And so God goes to Bathsheba, who understood what it means to be humble in the sight of a gracious God. That's what James is looking for. Let's pray. We'll be done. Father God, we, uh, we, we are we're just humbled. Um, as we sang earlier, Father, we are amazed by your grace. We are thankful that our chains are gone and that we have been set free. And um, the reason the reason we can sing such songs and the reason we can we can deal with such difficult passages as these of James is because you are such a gracious God. And because the truth is we are happiest when we just when we live according to your to your will. Father, what do we get when we go our own way? What do we get when we elevate ourselves? We get disorder And James says, every evil thing, we get wars big and small. So, Lord, it boils down to this war that's going on inside of us. It's a battle over whether or not we're going to fulfill our own desires. We're going to be concerned about our own five-year and ten-year plan, or are we going to be concerned about whatever your will is? Are we going to be concerned about elevating ourselves, or are we going to be concerned about you being elevated? Father... This morning, help it to be true of us that we would be low minded, that we would understand that we are but a breath. We are but the wind in the nostril given and taken away by you, our very God, in just a moment. Help us, Father, to understand a correct perspective of the life we've been given, that we would spend it on you. That we would not have the attitude of making our own plans under the illusion of our finances, under the illusion of the things we have gained or the things we have secured for our future. Father, might we see clearly that you and you alone are in control. And with the days that we have left here on this earth, even if it is just another, we'll give it to you. We'll give it to you. Help these things that James is teaching to be true of us, God. Help us to be truly humble men and women. So that in these remaining days that we are here on this earth to be light and salt, our lights would be bright and our salt would do what it's meant to do, that it would, that it would, it would season the gospel in this world so that it might be palatable in the mouths of those who are lost, in the mouths of those who need good news, would our lives season the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.